2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. 2016 was a record breaker, but not in a good way.
1: Government scientists announced today that 2016 was the hottest year
0: on Earth since record keeping began in the 1800s.
2: In fact, it's the third year in a row where the surface temperature has risen, and scientists say man-made global warming is a big reason for this trend. Today, where we live, we ask how climate change will affect Connecticut's coast. It's been more than three years since Hurricane Sandy hit the Northeast. How have our coastal cities and towns rebuilt to prepare for the next storm? and what plans are in place to make them more resilient. Coming up, we'll be joined by experts and local officials to talk about how climate change, specifically rising seas, impact us here at home. We'll also ask how the transition underway at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, under the Trump administration, will affect funding towards resiliency efforts in state and local communities. You can join the conversation today at 860-275-7266. Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewelive. But first a lot's been happening related to our nation's immigration system. Late Friday, President Trump signed an executive order that did several things, halting all refugees from entering the country, indefinitely banning Syrian refugees, and suspending citizens from seven Muslim nations from traveling here. The order caused confusion at airports as Homeland Security officials scrambled to prevent certain travelers from entering the U.S. Protests also broke out at airports across the country, including here in Connecticut. Just yesterday, 1,000 people gathered at Bradley International national airport. Joining us now to talk more about these protests is the executive director of ACLU Connecticut, David McGuire, who participated in some of these local protests over the weekend. He's joining us now by phone. David, welcome back to the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Lucy.
2: So we know the national ACLU brought forth a suit this weekend against the president's executive order. We hear a federal judge issued a temporary injunction that blocked the deportation of people at U.S. airports. You know, From the ACLU standpoint, what is most concerning about the president's executive order?
3: Well, we feel that the executive order flies in the face of the principles our country is built on. That's religious freedom and equality for everyone. Um, We made arguments in that case that the order violates due process, equal protection and international law. And the judge, the same night that we filed that uh, lawsuit found that we have a substantial likelihood of success on the merits, that this is in fact uh, unconstitutional, not likelihood.
2: So it's a temporary injunction. So what does it not provide?
3: Well, it's fairly narrow relief, so this is just the first step in what seems to be like it will be a marathon of legal pleadings um, in this case and against other potential unconstitutional executive orders. But what it does is prevent the U.S. government from deporting the folks that they detain from those seven Muslim, majority Muslim countries, um, and it is a nationwide injunction, so it applies to all, all the airports across the country.
2: So this is helping people that may have got caught up in it over the weekend. But what about, um, say, Connecticut residents um, who uh, may uh, be have citizenship over at some of these, uh, say, seven Muslim nations, who may be overseas for, say, research or work or visiting family? What happens to them?
3: Well, like you said, there's a lot of confusion here. And the, and the Trump administration has flip-flopped several times in the last 24 hours. Um, there are, in, in fact, people here that we've been reached out to by that have issues. Um, people from those seven countries who have traveled abroad for business, for example, who are fearful they won't be able to come back even though they have a legal green card and in some cases are married to Americans here. Um, Rens Priebus said that few people with the valid green card are able to come back, that the order does not cover them. Um, but then there's been other messages from the Trump administration countering that. So, um, you know, we are calling on the federal government to come out with clear, consistent, fair rules. Um, but ultimately, a lot of this will have to be resolved in the courts. And the great news this weekend, Lucy, was that we, we saw the courts still can work, they can stop government abuse and unconstitutional policies, and that when people speak out, like the rally in, at Bradley, which I was there at and spoke at, and I think there were closer to 2,000 people at that rally at the airport, it makes a difference.
2: Give us an idea of what you've been hearing of people that were impacted from Connecticut, um, whether it was be at an airport at Bradley. I've heard reports that that was not the case. But what about at Logan or JFK?
3: Right. We understand that there is at least one person that was traveling back. Um, It's a a medical resident from Yale Medical School who was on a humanitarian mission and came back early, cut it short by a couple of weeks because of fears of getting caught in this um, dragnet and was ultimately detained shortly, um, was later allowed to fly into Logan. But um, again, real fears and, and fears that have been recognized with some problems with immigration. Uh, and then in New Haven, the, the city was expecting to resettle about uh, a dozen families in the next couple of weeks from uh, these countries, and they will no longer be able to, to come over, at least not for the next um, 120 days.
2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. On the phone is David McGuire, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Connecticut. He participated in some local protests in Connecticut, including one at Bradley International Airport, uh, protesting the executive order that President Trump signed on Friday. A federal judge and a few cities also uh, signed a temporary injunction so that would help people who were caught up in this executive order from being immediately deported. Still a lot of questions remain about this executive order. I wanted to bring into the conversation W. NPR's Harriet Jones. She was at that rally at Bradley International Airport. Harriet, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. So, tell us yes. about. Can you hear us right now? Can you tell us yes, about? Um, you know, who who did you talk to? Who were the people that showed up at Bradley yesterday?
4: Well, this protest was organized really at very short notice by CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, in the Connecticut chapter of that organization. Um, the CARE officers had seen protests at larger airports all around the country at JFK and LAX and so forth. And they wanted to kind of act in solidarity and give people, you know, a way to show how they felt um, and show their support for immigrants and refugees. So they asked Bradley, you know, could we stage this protest? And Bradley, the Bradley management was welcoming of it. Um, uh, And they sent out a Facebook message, several tweets. And they said they were just surprised and delighted at the turnout. They really weren't expecting such a large and vocal crowd from, you know, as quickly as this was organized. But as David said, there were, you know, a thousand, maybe more than a thousand people at the airport. Went on for several hours. Um, Bradley Airport, you know, the international part of it is not a tremendously international airport. So this is not where anyone is detained. It only has one flight from Dublin and a few from Canada. So it's not a likely route for people returning from the Middle East or Africa but you know they felt it was an appropriate place to to hold this rally. Um, I I spoke with a few people there and um, one of the people who addressed the crowd, um, and also then spoke to reporters afterwards, was Rabbi Deborah Cantor of Bloomfield. She said she was very moved by the turnout.
0: Many of the founders of my synagogue uh, were refugees from Germany. Many of them came right after Kristallnacht, and so this is something that in my congregation resonates deeply. As Jews, we know from our history what it's like, what happens when the doors are closed. And then I saw that there would be this rally today and I came and when I got here and I saw the crowd, I, I, I really began to weep. So that
2: was Rabbi Deborah Cantor from Bloomfield. Uh, Harriet, have you, are you hearing about any more um, local efforts to raise awareness about you know how this this executive order is impacting uh, people? And people are just upset with uh, the the message that it sends, uh, not only to um, the rest of the country but also to our um, allies
4: and others around the world. Well, certainly yes. I think, and a lot of people who turned up yesterday said that they felt both that the the immigration uh, ban was un-American, and also that they felt it made people less safe, it made Americans abroad less safe. So, you know, a number of different concerns within the crowd, a very vocal crowd it was, too. Um, And the CARE officials and ACLU who were there, both saying, you know, to the people, the protesters who came out, you know, stay in touch, stay in touch with what's going on, stay in touch with us, you know, for ongoing events and what might happen in the future and how we can keep... uh, uh, how people can keep organized on this on this front.
2: That's WMPR's Harriet Jones. Thank you, Harriet, for your time this morning. You're welcome. Uh, she mentioned that CARE helped organize that rally. That's the Council for American Islamic Relations. Uh, joining us now by phone is executive director of CARE Connecticut, Manji Dawadi. Manji, welcome to the show.
5: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
2: So, first off, as a representative of this organization, your thoughts on this executive order signed Friday?
5: Um, unfortunately, this is uh, one of the executive orders that we were uh, expecting and waiting for. And, uh, but but even, even with that attitude, when, when it happened, it was a shock. It was, uh, it was very upsetting. It brought out uh, a lot of emotions, uh, a lot of fears and anxiety that our community was, uh, was under since this presidency and actually since his candidacy uh, actually materialized and came to life, and, and people realized that this is happening. Uh, it's not uh, something that he used as a rhetoric. It's not something that he used to rally his base to get uh, elected, but actually it's it's uh, it's something that's happening. That uh, It's a policy now at of the, this administration.
2: At the same time that there's a lot of opposition to this, the, the president was within his right to sign an executive order such as this. Moving forward, how will CARE respond?
5: Uh, Well, here locally, we are mobilizing people, and uh, first, we're trying to provide the correct information and the right information to our community. We have uh, a large immigrant community. Uh, Many of them are uh, from one of those uh, countries listed, the seven countries. Uh, and so we're trying to give them the the right information. Many people are you know asking if I am a double citizen, does that apply to me? I am traveling next week, a green card holder is that included or not and so we we've been in touch with the community and with some of the uh immigration lawyers to make sure that that we provide um these individuals with the right information. but at the same time, we're following what is happening at the nation um at the national level care. National said it's going to announce today a lawsuit against this ban that uh, targets not just the portion of the ban, but actually targets the whole executive order as unconstitutional, uh, and, and it's uh, specifically uh, singles out Muslims, uh, and, and and that is uh, we think that is un- an American and unconstitutional.
2: That's Manji Dowdy from uh, CARE, Connecticut. Um, Manji, before you go, tell us, you said that you're working with the local community, people who may be uh, you know, impacted by this. You know, give, us, give us a story of, of somebody that you're speaking with that is worried about whether they can travel or whether they'll see their family members again who may be abroad.
6: Right,
5: we, we've heard from several members. We have a lot of uh, community from, from Yemen, for example. Many of their uh, family members, uh, they were traveling overseas, and when they they were planning to come back, and they they just heard about this executive order, uh, so they are stuck uh, overseas. Many of them actually started their journey uh, and and flew to uh, to um, Dubai, and from there they were boarding another plane to the U.S. When they heard that the um, this executive order. place and so they they had to go back uh, to uh, to where they came from Uh, and another case I had which is somebody who is a dual citizenship he's Canadian um, and he he actually was born in Syria but he left Syria when he was three years old about 30 years ago Uh, this is a Canadian citizen who has a green card he works here he's a professional and he had a trip planned to Canada and back work trip and he was asking is this been uh, Going gonna to stop me from doing that, and uh, of course we advise him. Our lawyers advise him not to travel, um, and so he had to cancel his work plan, and he had to go back to his employer and explain to him why. Uh, and, and this is the kind of thing that uh, you know abruptly disrupted the lives of people, created this mass chaos and hysteria, um, and we hope that uh, that the, this administration, uh, and it's a very small hope to tell you the truth. Uh, that they will come to their senses and reverse this order, or at least Congress and, you know, with the, some members of the GOP who, who can see that this is an American executive order, that they will uh, enact the legislation that will stop it and, and reverse it.
2: Manji Dawadi is executive director of the Connecticut chapter of the Council of American Islamic Relations, uh, or CARE, who organized that rally yesterday at Bradley International Airport. Uh, Manji, thank you for your time.
5: Thank you so much. I just wanted to send a big, big thank you to the people of Connecticut, to ACLU, to other organizations, religious leaders and others who came at a short notice and came with with hundreds, with big hearts and a lot of signs and raised their voices. And and thank you also for, for the media who covered the event in a short notice.
2: Thank you, Manji. Also on the phone with us is David McGuire, executive director of ACLU Connecticut. Uh, Thank you for joining us for a few minutes to explain uh, the ACLU's uh, viewpoints on this executive order.
3: Thanks for covering this, Lucy. Take care.
2: Coming up, we shift focus now to climate change, something the current administration denies is a serious problem. How does this affect local efforts to plan for things like rising water along our coast? We'll find out after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanshell. We're shifting now from immigration to climate change. When we talk about how sea level rise caused by climate change will impact the U.S., attention's paid to our major cities like New York, Boston, and Miami. But we know rising water will affect our coastal communities here, too, in Connecticut. So how are our local cities and towns planning for this, as well as the next big storm post-Hurricane Sandy? Joining me now in studio is Jim O'Donnell, Executive Director of the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation and Professor of Marine Science, at the University of Connecticut, Jim, welcome to the show.
6: Well, thank you. Good morning.
2: So, I mentioned sea level rise, uh, one of the impacts of climate change. And when we have, when we talk about our coastal communities, we're thinking about um, the future. Um, how much and how fast are the seas expected to rise, and how will that impact us here?
6: Well, that's the central question. How fast, and uh, I think there are several projections that that we uh, are we have access to just now, made by federal agencies and international organizations, cooperative organizations. But they seem to agree that out to about 2050, there's a likelihood of about 25 centimeters, sea uh, level rise, about a foot, roughly. And after that, between 2050 and 2100, there's a lot more uncertainty. You know, the the range gets much larger. And that's partly because we are not really clear yet on how much CO2 emissions reductions are likely to occur between now and uh, 2100. Uh, And the other uncertainty is due to the fact that we don't really have a good understanding of the physics that link the ocean temperatures at high latitudes to the rate of melting of land ice. So how fast glaciers are going to melt. We don't really know how fast warming is going to accelerate that. And if it happens fast, then we get a lot more sea level rise. And uh, if it's slower, we don't. So there are two reasons.
2: So when you say 25 centimeters, that might not sound like a lot to some people.
6: Oh, that's a really good point, right? And, and it's not really – it's only a foot. You know, It's not even up to your knee, anyway. But what it does is it changes the, exp- the uh, frequency that p- places that are currently fl- fun- uh, getting flooded experience. So, and we can calculate what that's going to be fairly accurately. So if you, if you know what the sea level rise is going to be, you can calculate uh, how, fre- how much more frequently you should be expect to be flooded. And roughly, you know, if, if you get a 25 centimeters rise and you get flooded once every 100 years now, in eastern Connecticut, you may get flooded once every 20 years. So that's like a five-fold increase in the risk or a five-fold increase in the frequency of flooding. And so if you think that the cost of living by the shoreline includes insurance or repairs from flooding, then one may expect that you should expect to pay four or five times more for those in the future.
2: So I mentioned um, in the beginning of the segment, you're executive director of the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation, or CIRCA. So what's your focus there, and how are you looking at this problem?
6: Well, the institute was established by uh, the, the legislature, and opened by the governor a few years ago. And its goal is to try and provide um, the local towns, municipalities, cities, and the state with uh, scientific information that would be useful for helping them plan. So the question you asked is how, how high is water going to rise and when will it happen? That's a, not a simple question, but it's really very, very important because how high you have to raise a road or build a dike or, you know, um, depends upon that, that number. So the, the institute's goal is to try and provide that information like that to towns, and also t- we, we've been providing funding to towns that were uh, in order to help them actually use the information and to actually fix some things. Uh, so we've got a program where towns can apply to uh, uh, Circa and get grants. You know, not often very big grants, but twenty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars to uh, w- develop new. Uh, ways to respond so perhaps do planning activities figure out what's most vulnerable so our water treatment plants uh, are very close to the shore and what aspects of those are most vulnerable is it the pumps the power uh, power systems things like that so we do both things and the reason that it's good for us to be involved is that we can then learn what towns think is important and so there's a synergy between uh, academic research, and then uh, the town's needs, and so we can learn what they need, and they can and they can get stuff fixed.
2: And I understand that you're funded to focus on two specific counties in Connecticut. And tell us why.
6: Well, we, the, we have several types of funding. The circa is, fun- is a statewide program initially, and we're funding things in Dan in Danbury, for example, you know, but associated with river flooding. But we've got this new program that's starting up uh, that's funded by the Department of Housing and Urban Development to help uh, plan uh, for how to adapt in New Haven and Middlesex County and Fairfield County. Those are the counties that were uh, declared to be disaster areas after Sandy. And so there's special funding available for that, and we're going to be working there.
2: So tell us more. You mentioned the synergy happening between um, you know researchers and when we look at like towns that are worried about the impact of the next storm. You know, talk about that collaboration. What are you seeing on the ground if we're looking at a coastal community like say Old Saybrook?
6: Well, so the, the uh, there are so traditional ways to prevent flooding, right? They've been around for several hundred years. You build dikes, right, or or you can uh, see have seawalls. The problem is that those uh, those infrastructure has negative consequences for the environment. So if dikes can restrict flow into marshes, mm-hmm. and marshes are critical habitat for birds and some fish species, and so if you if we diked all the marshes in Connecticut, then the, the fish population would suffer, and the bird population would be different, and the, the the visual appeal of the coastline would be radically different. So, and also some of that is public land, mm-hmm. so there's a sort of a uh, ecological balance has to be struck between protecting the infrastructure and protecting the natural resources. And there's a sort of a political balance needs to be struck between private ownership and public ownership and, and uses. There are use conflicts. Yeah. So, so some of these questions are going to be, uh, have been around for a while, but they're going to become more uh, urgently uh, have to be addressed more urgently now because sea level rise is going to cause people to want to protect things more and we have to make decisions.
2: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nalpa Today we're, we're talking about climate change and how our coastal communities are planning for the next big storm or just thinking about ways to be more resilient. In studio with me is Jim O'Donnell, Executive Director of CIRCA, that's the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. Also, Professor of Marine Science at the University of Connecticut. Do you live along the shore? What are your thoughts about how climate change will impact your community? Um, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to bring into the conversation conversation conversation, a city official from uh, New Haven, uh, Giovanni Zinn. He's the city engineer again for New Haven. Uh, Giovanni, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on.
2: So tell us what are when you when you are looking at um, plans for the city of New Haven to become more uh, climate resilient? What does that mean? And how is the city um, doing that?
1: Well, I think uh, Jim hit a lot of the issues that we face from climate change right on the head. Uh, we we sort of have two different prongs which which uh, this problem is coming at us. One is obviously sea level rise. You know, you see uh, water levels coming up. Uh, the other is that uh, higher precipitation is pre- predicted, especially short, intense uh, rain events, uh, where we then have to drain the water out of the city. And when those two things happen at the same time, uh, then the water really has nowhere to go. Um, you know, We certainly see this, especially in our downtown area. We have about a 600-acre uh, downtown drainage area that goes right under the rail yard and then out to uh, the harbor. As the water in the harbor rises, it is a lot harder to drain the water from downtown, and that's when we run into uh, the risk of localized flooding and other issues like that. Uh, And to really address this, we're starting to uh, look at a whole range of things, including some of the traditional infrastructure, but I think our our first priority uh, is to adopt uh, green infrastructure techniques, Uh, things like um, bioswales in the right-of-way where you infiltrate water instead of having it go into a catch basin and immediately going out to the harbor. Uh, Also along the coastline, you know, on the shore, looking at living shoreline techniques, sort of... uh, mimicking nature in a sense to, to put in more resilient infrastructure that while the shoreline itself will change a bit as storms come and go but they provide that natural uh, protection on the shore
2: so you're talking about green infrastructure when did the city start um, thinking about this
1: Uh, We probably started three or four years ago, uh, and it's part of a much larger national uh, trend to go back to, uh, you know, the way that nature intended, which water falls on the ground and it gets infiltrated, then it goes, uh, you know, into streams and brooks and then out to uh, the water bodies. Um, You know, we certainly see nationally New York City, Philadelphia, Portland uh, doing this, and it's really our job as city officials to look around the nation and bring the best uh, techniques uh, here to New Haven. Um, So you'll see in the next uh, couple of years, probably about 300 of these uh, right-of-way green infrastructure installations. They look like tree pits that have curb cuts where the water can go into the tree pit. It waters the trees, waters other plants that are there. Um, You know, not only does it divert water from our stormwater system, but it actually, you know, I think creates a very nice uh, streetscape and amenity.
2: And that is Giovanni Zinn who's city engineer for the city of New Haven we're asking him about his climate resiliency plan for the city i'll turn back to Jim O'Donnell from circa i mean this is kind of, green infrastructure is the way to go
6: absolutely yeah, I think that, that, that there we've we've been focused a lot on what happens at the shoreline, but as Giovanni said that there, there is climate change impacts all across the state and uh some of the old cities have uh, drainage patterns that were engineered uh, for, with expectations of a particular level of rainfall, and the, the models are a little uh, uh, unclear about exactly what's going to happen, but it, but evidence suggests across New England that there's been a change in rainfall over the last 50 years. And so new plans require uh, preparation for handling more stormwater runoff, and having it contained uh, near where it falls is much smarter than trying to collect it all and then handle it in a, in a treatment plant.
2: And so what are the biggest challenges to, th- to thinking in this way? Is it funding?
6: Well, funding is always always, always a, a critical issue. And, and not only how much, but who pays. And there is uh, a, a lot of uh, infrastructure that's old in Connecticut in the cities. Some of it has to be replaced anyway, and so we're, we're going to be facing those costs but designing uh with expectation that the equipment the infrastructure was going to last a hundred years requires us really to think about what the conditions are going to be there and so there's an opportunity and it's it's uh allows us to consider what development patterns uh, are going should be like because the other part of climate change uh that's important is to understand that the extent that we have to uh plan for change depends upon how much CO2 emissions we're going to have between now and 2050. And if we reduce our CO2 emissions between now and then, in a substantial way, we can reduce the expense associated with adaptation.
2: I'll ask that same question to uh, Giovanni Zinn from New Haven. Um, Talk about resources. Is that a challenge when we're thinking about being resilient?
1: Well, re- resources are definitely a challenge. They're always a challenge uh, everywhere you look at the municipal level. Uh, you know, I think we've been very lucky in New Haven. We have a, a grant from uh, from HUD to through the state to put in 200 bioswales in our downtown area for green infrastructure. Um, also, we've taken a, a green infrastructure first uh mentality in our own projects here in the engineering department, uh, oftentimes green infrastructure can solve drainage problems uh, less expensively than traditional infrastructure. So I think a lot of it also is starting to get very creative about how we think about these projects and making sure that we uh, take the most cost-effective approach.
2: And, uh, Giovanna you mentioned uh, grants from HUD. You know, Now that we have a new administration, any worry that some of this money is going to uh, dry up, so to speak?
1: Well, it's certainly a question that we've gotten many, many times in the, in the last week. And to a certain extent, it, it's, it's hard to predict the future. Um, you know, we, we certainly do hope that it will continue. I mean, investing in infrastructure, I think, is something that uh, everybody agrees is extremely important. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, I don't think we're going to change who we are just to uh, s- secure uh, more funding or, or different types of funding from the federal government.
2: You can join the conversation today. Again, we're talking about climate change and local and state efforts to um, deal with that threat, um, how it can impact our coast, uh, as we heard um, a little bit earlier in the show. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Scott's calling from Wallingford. Scott, you're on the show.
7: Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. Yes. I just wanted to um, indicate that you know here in Wallingford, although we're not a coastal town, we do um, have you know, our concerns on climate change and, and sea level issues. And what we've done is we've enacted a, a, a community programming um, through our Wallingford Library, and we've gotten quite a few people interested and involved. And, you know, our goal is to, um, is to get the community involved and do some outreach education and, um, and get folks, you know, involved. And how can we do things in our everyday lifestyle to make our own difference, make a difference um, in the bigger picture. Even little things like uh, cutting back on the use of beef and water and how we use our electricity and our heating and transportation fuels and um, and getting involved uh, locally, politically. So um, people, it seems like such a daunting problem, but folks can do little things in their everyday life that will make a difference. So. I wanted to just bring attention to that.
2: Thank you, Scott, for your comment. I'll turn back to uh, Jim O'Donnell. Um, he said that again. When you think about climate change and what it will be, um, what will be the effects uh, fifty years, a hundred years out? It can be daunting. What would you say to the average listener, consumer?
6: Well, the, the upside of, of, of this is that the you know, politics of today you don't really have such a huge role as one might think. You know, in the long term, that. Uh, and I think the history over the last decade has shown that the movement for, uh, like like in New Haven, where the the town the town itself is planning to do adaptation projects, they see it as an as an urgent initiative for them, and across the across the world, t- people who are in, at the town level of management are seeing the effects of storms and flooding and they're making changes now, and they're pressing for the people farther further up the political chain to make, to make uh, f- forward-looking decisions. And I think that's just going to continue. The mayors in cities and towns around the world are, as New Haven uh, is, uh, are getting together to help plan, and the national leaderships will follow. It's ne- I think it's inevitable.
2: I want to take another call. You just mentioned storms. Uh, Dorothy mentions that in her comment. Dorothy from Hamden, you're on the show.
4: Um, Yes. Hello. Thank you. Um, My question is very similar, which has to do with the fact that climate change has been known to cause more serious storms and hurricanes. And how might we anticipate Connecticut needs to prepare for those and the flooding and other damage that may occur?
2: Thank you for your
6: question. Well, the the I think the risk of a hu- of a of a Category Three or Category Four hurricane in Connecticut is not going to change very much. You know, the the risk is is maybe one one in a hundred uh, currently of a of a storm something like uh, the Hurricane of Thirty Eight. So that's that's one percent, or uh, so that's not huge, and it's not going to change to five percent. What's going to change most noticeably is the flooding associated with the kinds of storms that occur every year. Uh, the flooding associated with a storm that occurs every year will be just more extensive. And, and for every year until 20, until, well, as far as we can see, right, it's just going to get worse and worse, and the, and the damage will not be huge, but it'll be persistent, and uh, people will have to adapt to it.
2: And Giovanni uh, Zinn, again, city engineer for the city of New Haven, uh, what's your take? Is it more worried about the, the frequent flooding versus the next big storm?
5: Well,
1: I think honestly we have to be prepared for both. Uh, you know, I I think Jim hit it on the head that you know while we're not going to see necessarily a Category Three storm, what it does do is sort of redefine what some of these smaller storms are. Uh, you know, the the flooding that we see now from uh, you know a, a Sandy or something like that. You know, if you're looking in 2050 when you know sea level will be about a foot higher, that's yet another foot that you're starting from, um, and uh, the impacts will be that much greater. You know, one of the things we saw here locally in Sandy is that You know, another foot would have really changed the impacts that Sandy had in New Haven and made them much more dramatic due to the, you know, sort of the intricacies of the topography here. Uh, So, we're very concerned about it. You know, even a little bit more does, can have a a multiplier effect in some of these storms.
2: And I know that you work for the city of New Haven, but in terms of some of the neighboring uh, suburbs, is there a collaborative effort and ways to think about best practices and how to support each other with the question uh, in the future that maybe resources will be thinner?
1: Well, I think it's something that the, the conversation is starting to happen. Certainly CIRCA is doing a lot to bring that conversation to the forefront among the different municipalities. Uh, it, it's something that I think in general in Connecticut we need to do a much better job of is working together uh, with our neighbors uh, and, and facing some of these issues. Nature certainly doesn't respect uh, municipal boundaries, and, and we should really attack these problems together.
2: Well, I want to thank uh, Giovanni Zinn again, New Haven's City Engineer, for joining us. Thanks, Giovanni.
1: Thank you very much.
2: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpatanchel. Coming up we're gonna check in with Connecticut's top environmental official and find out how the state is meeting the threat of climate change. And again, you can join the conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, 58 years, 50 states, one governor's commitment to change. On the next Where We Live, statehood for Puerto Rico. Some say yes, others say no way. We'll consider what lies ahead for the island under its new leader. That's tomorrow. And we know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at wmpr.org. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can always subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, today we're talking about climate change. Now, we know President Donald Trump and other officials in his, in his administration do not take the science seriously. Here's the president talking to Fox News during his campaign late last year. He was asked if he believed in global warming and climate change.
3: I think that there'll be little change here. It'll go up. It'll get a little cooler. It'll get a little warmer like it always has for millions of years. It'll get cooler. It'll get warmer. It's called weather. And I believe strongly in clean water and clean air. But I don't believe that what they say, I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money.
2: Meanwhile, we know there's a lot of science backing up why climate change is a problem. And locally, efforts are underway to deal with the impact of our planet getting warmer, including rising sea level, impending storms, which is what we've been focusing on today. Now, how is the state of Connecticut planning? Joining us now is Connecticut's Commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, Rob Klee. Commissioner Klee, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for having me here.
2: So there's lots of questions with this new administration, uh, one being, what's going to happen within the Federal um, Environmental Protection Agency because of the transition? You know, we're curious, you know, from your standpoint as commissioner of uh, of DEEP uh, here in Connecticut, are you concerned about uh, the funding streams and how that will impact programs already in place?
0: Um, well, it's been an interesting first week, and I guess mm-hmm. I use interesting in the politest way I can. Mm-hmm. Um, we we were actually were pretty surprised to hear the initial announcement of the sort of freezing of grants and contracts because our agency has a total budget of 175 plus million 31 million comes from the EPA that's about 18% of our budget it funds vital programs uh, our clean water revolving fund Our performance partnership grant, which uh, all of the major work we do under federal laws, plus things for underground storage tanks, cleanups of uh, brownfield sites, Long Island sound work. These are all fundamental to our mission of preserving and protecting clean air and water and lands here in Connecticut.
2: So you said 18% of the state's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, your budget comes from, from funds from the U.S. EPA.
0: Correct. And we get additional funds from, uh, I think, a dozen other federal agencies. So our total federal budget is about $45 million, which is about 25% of our, of our total budget.
2: So when that freeze uh, came into effect and I'm not sure if yet if it's been lifted or not but how did that impact these programs if at all locally?
0: Uh so for us it was a scramble to connect with our folks at uh, EPA Region 1 and elsewhere to understand what the what it actually meant it uh took a few days and we they uh did lift the freeze on those fundamental uh, elements of our budget, the clean water revolving fund and the performance Par- partnership grant, um, we had other dollars in those other areas, um, though no active grants at the moment so here in Connecticut, we are okay, but our municipal partners, our nonprofit partners, and our our educational our scientific uh, research community they're all probably have more questions than answers uh, at the moment and that 's to us one of the the biggest concerns is right there on the the federal government does amazing basic scientific research itself. It's a warehouse of critical data, and it funds research at uh, institutions like UConn and, and Yale and all these other instit- wonderful institutions here in Connecticut. What is the direction there? And that's an unknown that we're, we're monitoring very closely.
2: So there is a lot of unknowns when we look at um, what's happening within the new administration in terms of of climate change science, but we know that Connecticut is on a path, and they've been on a path under the leadership of Governor Malloy and uh, with other um, state officials, and how to be more resilient, to invest in renewable energy. So can you talk us through some of those programs and how the state can, um, you know, how the state is planning to to keep moving forward on those efforts, even if there are some uh, unknowns within the federal
0: government well that's uh that is an area where uh, governor Malloy and and the team here have, have demonstrated leadership in a bipartisan fashion with the general Assembly as well. Um, Leadership here uh, comes in a number of of different forms on both the clean energy investment side. We have the first in the nation, Connecticut Green Bank, that has, in its five-year existence, brought in a billion dollars in private capital into the clean energy economy of Connecticut. That has generated 4,700-plus jobs and reduced energy burden uh, throughout the state. That's private money going to work here. Uh, on the federal side, there's the there are monies uh, from Department of Energy for weatherization that have been invested, particularly in uh, low and moderate income communities where the energy burden is quite a large percentage of their monthly bill spend, and that's really a place that we try to focus. Uh, our limited dollars. We, it, this is a place where government's not going to have all the money, particularly a state government, to, to solve, particularly on the clean energy space. So finding ways to get the private sector excited and motivated and in investing here is one of the the unique things that we've been doing here in Connecticut, and should be a model for the rest of the country.
2: We were talking today also about just um, these resiliency plans that communities have started to develop, especially after uh, post-Sandy. Um, Traditionally, when we're talking about resiliency, that money is coming from grants or other competitions. And so, um, if that again dries up from the federal level, you're going to see more private investment, leaning on them to to help.
0: Oh so Lucy, that's a that's a hard one to to try to figure out. It's actually something we're working with Circa, um, and Circa brings to to the table the folks from not just Jim's side of of the house, the natural resource size, but. The legal folks, the law school folks, the economics folks, the all the different sort of uh, the insurance expertise that UConn has to try to think about are the creative financing tools. Now, we're going to invest our bond funds, and we do. And we have a billion-dollar clean water bond fund program in Connecticut that has dramatically improved. Uh, the water quality in Long Island Sound, you can use some of those dollars to invest in the things like Giovanni Zinn was, was mentioning, in green infrastructure, in hardening and making more resilient your sewage treatment plants. But again, we need to find new methods of uh, investment in these coastal and inland floodplain communities, and pulling together new ideas is uh, one of the jobs, I think, of Circa.
2: So I'll put Jim on the spot from Circa, Executive Director again at Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. What are some of the new ideas?
6: Well, there is clearly a risk that is increasing along the shoreline and inland too. But the strategies that have been used in the past uh, to to mitigate that risk is in federal flood insurance. It, it is based on sort of backward-looking science, you know. The, the and so, if risk is increasing, then we the there needs to be a way that people who uh, can say, can see that they will save money if they invest in in things that will reduce that risk, but at the moment there it's hard for people to see the payoff. You know, they sh- their flood insurance is uh, rates are sort of not not reflecting the real risk, and so when so when they do something like they raise the house, it's hard for them to see the the improved value. in from towns and municipalities' perspectives there's really no insurance they're, they're self-insured and so there's uh n- not a lot of uh, in way to s- save money by it's it's seen as a cost you know so we need to figure out how to uh change the insurance structure that so that people are incentivized and towns and cities are incentivized to do things that are more forward looking so the first step is to be clear about what the risks are likely to be in the future And the second thing is to try and figure out what laws and financing incentives and uh, other rules need to be changed.
2: You you mentioned um, incentives. We we know in the past the federal government has offered tax credits, say, for renewables. Again, question of whether that will remain. Yeah,
0: and that's an area, uh, again, where the federal government has been very active. I'm I'm interested in hopefully... uh, where the, uh, the Trump administration is interested in infrastructure. This is the type of infrastructure that actually creates great jobs here in Connecticut, investments in energy infrastructure, and upgrades to our grid, and upgrades to our transmission system. I'd like to see more investments there, because it is essential that we work on reducing the amount of man-made greenhouse gases that are being emitted into the atmosphere to help mitigate those risks that we're feeling all in Connecticut. And they're real risks, and we're, we're, I do take issue with the, the The president's, you know, characterization of this as a hoax or as uh, a—it's not. Um, Our folks here in Connecticut feel it and see it and have observed it. And in the changing uh, uh, flood patterns, that everyday storm um, that becomes a lot more damaging. The the high tide that is now flooding places that people have never seen a high tide flood go. So that's where we're doing innovation without the federal government. Frankly, Um, our regional greenhouse gas initiative first uh, cap and trade system. We're investing those proceeds over $20 million a year in efficiency and renewable programs here in Connecticut and in a region uh, from mid-Atlantic to Maine of Republican and Democratic states working together to solve the problem in a, that is based on sound science.
2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's uh, Commissioner Rob Klee. He's uh, the leader of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Today we're talking about climate change, how local and state governments uh, can plan for the future even if there's a disconnect uh, from Washington. You can join the conversation 860-275-7266 if you have a quick question for Commissioner Klee. I wanted to go back to something that Jim O'Donnell said about just the grassroots effort um, that is growing within communities and how that will influence Um, and hopefully uh, encourage, say, our federal officials um, in terms of of strategies or projects that we should be um, looking towards. I mean, do you see that kind of effort also, Commissioner Klee?
0: Oh, We sure do. And the caller from uh, Wallingter- Wallingford uh, hit it on the head. There's Clean Energy Task Force in uh, communities around uh, the state. They've been mobilized. They've been working with their neighbors. Um, the Green Bank has uh, worked on a solarized campaign model, which is really social marketing that gets folks out there excited about uh, deploying uh, solar on their rooftop. Um, we have municipalities that see the uh, potential to save money by investing in clean distributed generation, uh, money that is uh, saved for all of their taxpayers. And the state's doing itself. We're it, it itself. We're looking to lead by example. We're our state uh, electric bill is about 15 percent, uh, and electric and our, uh, our our gas bill are about 15 percent of the total load. Efficiency investments that we make benefit all taxpayers. So it's happening at the very local level, it's happening at the state level, and it's happening at the regional level, and it will continue.
2: We're almost out of time, but I want to turn back to Jim O'Donnell from Circa. You know, we're, we've been focusing a lot um, this hour on efforts from uh, local municipalities and, and towns about how to be more resilient. But um, from your standpoint, in terms of industry and how it's being impacted by climate change, say the fishing industry for one, I mean, what are you hearing from them about um, fears about what the future holds? Well,
6: well there's a Pretty clear impact in Long Island Sand that, that has been observed and documented. And, and it's, it's actually a good, qu- so it ties a, this issue together that EPA has been funding the Connecticut DEP for about 25 years to do sampling of uh, the water in Long Island Sand. And they measure as part of that temperature. And when you look at the temperature, and at the same time, they've been doing fish surveys with federal funds too. And so it's pretty clear that there's been a warming over the past twenty five years, and there's been a shift to from uh, fish that is more typically found are more typically found to the south of Long Island, versus the ones that were to the north of Long Island. So this uh, kind of shift in the fish ecosystem is is, is consistent with the notion that there's been a slight warming, and the lobster reductions are also can be explained by by that, that they are typically found to the north of Long Island Sand, but they seem to be going away. The catches are down by a factor of 10.
2: We're going to have to leave it there. Again, uh, this is Jim O'Donnell, Executive Director of CIRCA, the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. A lot to talk about, not enough time, and we can have you back again, Jim. Happy to. Also, I want to thank Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, Rob Klee. Commissioner Klee, thank you for joining us.
0: Uh, Great to be here.
2: And hopefully we can get an update from you in the future about um, how we proceed in the months and, and year ahead. Thank you again, Commissioner Klee. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.